0: That brings us to John chapter four. John chapter four. <clears throat> have you ever have you ever been somewhere where you felt out of place? <clears throat> I don't know if you've had experiences, maybe at a dinner party, or you got invited uh, to go somewhere, uh, uh, had an occasion to, to hang out with some people, maybe the setting was different than what you expected. Um, maybe you, maybe you find yourself at church today and you think oh, I feel out of place here, um, <clears throat> or uh, some some situation with coworkers workers that uh, took a turn differently than what you were expecting and you just kind of felt a little out of place. Maybe it was a fancy party and you didn't get the memo and you came underdressed, or uh, maybe it was a casual thing and you came overdressed, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, we've all had moments where we've found ourselves as the outcast, uh, feeling like we didn't belong somewhere. Um, in our passage today in John 4, Uh, We'll see on one hand, Jesus uh, finds himself in a place perhaps that uh, he didn't feel like he belonged, but he also finds himself talking to a woman um, from Samaria who uh, inevitably has felt throughout her life, perhaps many times, like she didn't belong. And uh, as we look at this passage and, and as we've been doing throughout this series, we're looking at Jesus's conversations with different people in the Gospel of John. Uh, seeing how he interacted uh, with various people and and seeing what it looks like for us to know him through his conversations with others. But also, what does it look like for us to make Jesus known, to learn how to make Jesus known from Jesus himself as he communicated with various people? We've seen Jesus interacting with Nathaniel, who's a, a skeptic, who's unsure that anything good can come from Nazareth. And and, and how Jesus interacts with him and, and reveals himself to Nathaniel, who becomes a disciple and a follower of Jesus. And how in John 3 we see um, Nicodemus who's seeking, who's looking for answers, who's trying to figure it out, who knows a lot of stuff but hasn't yet figured out what it means to be born again, how Jesus uh, directs him and speaks him to find this new life, this life after uh, birth that's found in Christ. And and now we come to Jesus' interaction with the Sumerian woman in John chapter 4. This is a passage that's familiar uh, to many Christians, and perhaps even if you're not super familiar with the Gospel of John, you may be familiar with this story and this interaction that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. It's one uh, that shows us a lot about uh, both how to make Jesus known as well as uh, a little bit about who Jesus is. It reveals His identity to us. And so we, we want to look at this passage and I want you to see a few different things. If you notice in verses one through six, um, we're going to see that Jesus goes where we don't expect. Jesus goes where we don't expect. You heard the passage read, uh, but it says that that Jesus basically has been doing some ministry um, <clears throat> in, in Judea and is departing again for Galilee, it says in uh, verse two, and uh, there's Throughout Jesus's ministry, times where Jesus often removes himself when there's a a big to do about his ministry, he uh, will remove himself from John the Baptist here as people are starting to to compare the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And later on, as the Pharisees and the religious leaders will uh, come to a fever pitch in terms of their opposition to Jesus, he'll remove himself uh, from. The area because his time had not yet come and we see that sort of thing happening but here we see that he's going uh, to Galilee from Judea and it says in verse four he had to pass through Samaria and he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour or about noon Jesus finds himself in a place that we don't expect. Now, a devout Jew during this time on his way from Judea to Galilee would have likely passed around Samaria. Historically, the Samarians were left, many of them were left there after the Assyrian exile, and there were other Canaanites and others uh, from the surrounding nations that also were there, and these remaining uh, Jews from the Israel, uh, from the from the Northern Kingdom intermarried with the Canaanites and the surrounding nations, and were kind of a a half breed mixture uh, in the eyes of the Jewish people, uh, and also had their own set of uh, traditions and and values. Uh, they held to the first five books of the Bible; what's called the Pentateuch of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and and didn't. Um, didn't acknowledge the other prophets. Uh, just saw the first five books as their guiding book. They had their own form of worship, which was a type of syncretism of sorts at Mount Gerizim, where they had their own temple, which would later also be destroyed. But uh, they they were historically at odds with the Jews, and a devout Jew would would see himself in opposition to the Samaritans. To the Samaritans, <clears throat> and and often. Uh, there was animosity that would be represented. Of course, this wasn't reflective of the heart of God uh, for His people against any other nation, and yet reveals the the sin that's in all of our hearts as we look at people who are different than us uh, and we oppose them. That's exactly uh, what the Jews of this time had done. Uh, but it would have been normal for them to go around. And many many commentators will will point here, we see this language of, in verse 4 that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. I have to admit, it preaches really well if it was a divine imperative that Jesus had to go to Samaria. Uh, I'm a little torn on looking at this passage whether or not that's the exact point, but it becomes abundantly clear throughout this passage that Jesus didn't end up in Samaria without a purpose and without a plan For what he intended to do and in many ways we see here in john chapter 4 the movement if you look at john 3 through 4 together we see the movement of the gospel of the good news about jesus from jerusalem and judea into samaria and then at the end of chapter 4 as jesus heals the roman official son the gospel going to the nations we see in capsule uh, encapsulated in two chapters, the Great Commission unfolding ahead of time here in the Gospel of John. And so it's no accident that Jesus finds Himself here, but what's striking about it is it's not the place that we would have expected a Jewish rabbi like Jesus to end up at, and nor is it the conversation that we would have expected a Jewish rabbi like Jesus to be having at noon uh, on His journey to Galilee. But of course we know about Jesus, that Jesus isn't just a Jewish rabbi. He's the Savior, the Messiah, who came to seek and save the lost, as we saw in John chapter 12 at the beginning of this series. And to understand who Jesus is, you have to understand the purpose for which he came. And we're going to see once more Jesus interacting with this Samaritan woman from Samaria uh, in such a way that we don't expect and it's a lesson for us, I think, as we uh, look at Jesus's interaction, um, it, for us to consider the way that Jesus views other people and the way that uh, Jesus carries himself in the places that he goes. Just to, to press in a little bit more, uh, not only historically was there beef between the, the Jew, Jews and the Samaritans, but, but, but also just even if you skip ahead and you look in verse 27, when the When the disciples come back, and we'll see here in a minute, Jesus will send them away to get some food in town. When they come back, notice their response. We see just why this is unexpected for Jesus to to end up where he's at, talking to who he's talking to. It says that they came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? or Why are you talking with her? see they they themselves were surprised at Jesus and there's there's multiple layers here it wouldn't be common for a Jewish man particularly a Jewish leader a rabbi like Jesus to be interacting with a woman uh, it wouldn't be common for Jews and Samaritans to be interacting with one another there's multiple layers here of Jesus finding himself in a conversation that we wouldn't expect and and as we as we consider Jesus Jesus's trajectory of his journey of having to go through Samaria. It teaches us just as Jesus found himself in places that we don't expect. We also should be the kind of people as followers of Christ who find ourselves in places that many wouldn't expect and in conversations with people that many wouldn't expect because we could say it this way. Jesus goes where we don't expect and talks to people we wouldn't approve because the gospel knows no boundary of sin, which God will forgive or life, which God will transform. I think as I read this this week, I I couldn't help but just be challenged in my own perspective. Some of you know, know my story, um, but uh, my biological mom and dad weren't married. My mom is the mother of three children from three different fathers in our story, we'll find this Samaritan woman finds herself with a similar story. And I thought to myself as I was reading this, Jesus is talking to my mom. Would I make time to stop and talk to my mom? Would you make time to stop and talk to my mom? The, the kind of people that we look at, uh, that we think, oh, I don't, I, I don't have any way to relate to them. They're not interested in talking to me. I, I know at our core, at our best, we don't look around at other people in pride and think I'm better than them, though I think we do that. Uh, but at the, the basic level, if it's not pride that keeps us from people, it's fear. It's the unknown. They, they're different than me. I can't relate to them. How could I talk to them? If Jesus goes where we don't expect, it's not Jesus who needs to fall in line. It's us who needs to get in line. The the challenge as we see Jesus interact with this woman here in a moment is one that Jesus shows us His his heart for people. The reason for which He came. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. He didn't come for those who thought they were righteous, but for those who knew they were unrighteous. Not, Not that those who think they're righteous and that those who think they're healthy don't need a Savior, but Jesus shows us continually time and time again how he goes to the least, how he goes to the forgotten and the rejected. And he even shows us that in the disciples that he chose to call to follow him. He didn't choose the elite. He chose the fishermen. He, he chose, the, in many ways, those who would be on the margin. We have to see people like Jesus sees people. We have to do away with transactional relationships. And I think this strikes to the core, this this is acceptable in our culture, to have transactional relationships. And by that I mean, you talk to people who are like you, who are on your level, and you talk to people who can do things for you. You talk to people who, who whether it's on a personal level, who make you feel better, who can meet some need that you have, or maybe at some professional uh, uh, career level in which they can help you advance. We, we tend to prioritize talking to those with whom look and, and make us feel comfortable, as well as those who can get us to where we want to go. Most of our relationships, if, if not checked, in some way can, can be defined by this type of transactional nature. And it's normal and it's acceptable. It's, it's the most acceptable and ordinary thing that we do. It's, it reflects on, on how we organize our life, who we spend our time with. We have to be people who don't merely make room to talk to people who can benefit us or who are like us, who can get us somewhere. I think as we look at Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospel of John, there are many times that we're not only challenged by Jesus' words, but we're challenged by His actions, by the way He carried Himself, by the places that He went, by the people that He talked to. And we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus goes where He wouldn't expect Would he find us there if he came back today? Would he find us talking to people who can't benefit us? Find us talking to people who are different than us? Would he find us crossing ethnic boundaries? Would he find us crossing socioeconomic boundaries? Would he find us crossing the the conversations that go, oh, you're talking to them? Oh, you went there and hung out with them? You see, I, I think sometimes in our culture today as Christians, we, As we hear this, especially uh, in this present moment, there's a tendency where we can think, oh yeah, this will make Christianity look good if we go do these things. If, if I'm cool and I'm hanging out with, with the sinners and, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm over here. And I think we need, to, we need to be willing to go to the places where, where there is need, go to the places that uh, cross uh, the boundaries often because we're, we're not being held by our comfort, but by, we're being driven by the gospel. But we're not doing it to look cool and acceptable in our culture. We're doing it because we're following Jesus. Following Jesus who went to the places that we wouldn't expect. He, he's pushing and challenging. We're going to see that this story doesn't end with the Samaritan woman. It ends with Jesus speaking to his disciples. The, the lesson in John 4, yes, shows us about how Jesus interacts with, with the Samaritan woman, how he interacts with the outcast. But the point is for the disciples to understand that they too once were outcasts and Jesus has a mission for them. And if they're going to be a part of that mission, they have to have eyes to see people like he sees them. They have to be willing to go to the places that other people aren't willing to go. If comfort is the defining uh, reality of our lives, we will not carry out the work that God has called us to do. If comfort and security is what we seek above everything else, we will not be able to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Because He goes to the places that we don't expect. He talks to the people that we wouldn't approve. And we're going to see here in a moment His conversation with them is, with this Samaritan woman <clears throat> is neither defined by Bible-thumping uh, condemnation, nor is it defined by a superficial, sentimental dismissal of sin. Uh, in fact, it blows away every category in which we often carry out conversation in our day, as it, off, as it should as we uh, look at Jesus. But, but what I want to challenge us is to have eyes to see people like Jesus does, to be willing to, to go places that sometimes we're afraid of because of our comfort or because of our security? or What, what would I have to say to them? I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've found myself in, in conversations, whether, um, <clears throat> whether it's with a friend or a neighbor, uh, having a conversation, even um, moving here. I was having some conversations with some pastors in the area. I was sitting down next to a pastor. He said, I don't think I've ever talked to a Baptist pastor before. And I said, I don't think I've ever talked to a Lutheran pastor before. Uh, and here we are in this conversation. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, as I, you talked to perhaps um, <clears throat> early on in our, our journey, having a conversation with a a lesbian teacher in our community, who says, "I don't think I've I've had this type of conversation with a pastor before, with a Christian before, talking to a person who's an atheist or, or an agnostic, who says, "I don't think I've ever heard a Christian who's willing to just kind of listen to my questions and interact with me, and and not just." Uh, shut down the conversation when I express my doubt or my question. As Christians, are we willing to have those conversations? Are we willing to put ourselves in positions to have those conversations and then willing to ask God to help us to have those conversations? We see Jesus goes to places that we don't expect and the people we wouldn't approve because the gospel knows no boundary for sin that can be forgiven or for lives that can be transformed. That's our Savior. Jesus goes where we don't expect. But then he offers satisfaction that we can't find anywhere else. Look in verse 7 down through 18. We see the unfolding of this conversation that Jesus has with this woman from Samaria. Jesus is already, we've already been told he's come to Jacob's well and he's thirsty and he's sitting down at the 12th hour. The disciples have gone into town to find food. And this woman comes at an unexpected, unusual time in the middle of the day. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And here's as it unfolds, his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. I love this interaction with Jesus. It's a, an ordinary need that Jesus has that leads to an extraordinary offer of living water. It, it's... Uh, in many ways shows us the humanity of Jesus. And here in a moment, we're going to see the full divinity of Jesus as he tells the woman uh, uh, all that she's ever done in her own words, as she'll say later in the chapter. And he comes to her and says, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a drink? And she's shocked by the request. Now, as we think about what it means to talk to other people about Jesus, I, I I think when you look here at John 4, I think what's what's striking about Jesus is is that it is an ordinary interaction and yet Jesus presses to deeper spiritual realities but I don't think uh that you you always need to be ready to have uh some type of fitting you know transition to the conversation if you're um <clears throat> you know if you're talking to to the trash man, which you really wouldn't anymore because the the arm that comes out and dumps it in. But you wouldn't be like, hey, can I tell you about the one who you know clean, cleans all our trash out of our lives and, uh, and makes us new. You don't you don't have to you know say to uh, to the person who's bringing your mail, hey, can I can I tell you the best message that's ever been delivered? You know, like you don't have to have some type of Jesus juke in every conversation with someone in which you uh, you automatically make some you know cool connection. Um, but what I what I think is striking about Jesus, as we see throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus often takes material realities that he's interacting with people about and he presses to a spiritual truth. Um, he's willing to, to go to the greater need, to the to the spiritual reality. Um, and so we have this material spiritual dynamic that unfolds. Throughout the Gospel of John, he says to, to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, how can I go back in my mother's womb? That's impossible. It's this a material spiritual reality. He says to the woman at the well, give me a drink. And she's like, you shouldn't be asking me this question. He says, well, frankly, there's something even greater that I have to offer. If you knew who you were talking with, you would ask me for living water. Um, <clears throat> and, and it gets to the heart of, of what Jesus offers. Jesus offers satisfaction that we can't find anywhere else. He says to her, I have living water. And, and we see uh, how this woman, uh, as she hears what he's saying, she, she connects with it. She wants what he has. She says, yes, uh, though you have nothing to draw water with this well as deep, where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus says to her once more, hey, hear me, I'm not talking about water from this well. I'm talking about water that, that you will drink and it will satisfy you forever. Everyone, he says in verse 13, who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. It's the nature of thirst. You take a glass of water, as refreshing as it may be, and you go about your day, you're going to need some more. But Jesus says, I have something greater. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is talking about the dynamic of spiritual life, of new life. In fact, He goes on, uh, as we saw there in verse 14, He defines it. It's that the spring of water welling up to eternal life. In John chapter 7, if you look over in verses 37 uh, through 40, uh, Jesus, on the last day of the feast uh, there uh, in the chapter, He stood up and He cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then as an aside, John explains. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. He had not been crucified and resurrected and ascended. So the, the life that Jesus is talking about, eternal life, all satisfying life, is found through understanding who Jesus is, and it comes about through the work of the Spirit at work within us. And Jesus is offering a satisfaction we can't find anywhere else. He says, uh, what he says here in this passage is reflective of what uh, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Living water. All satisfying life is what Jesus is talking about. And what's amazing about the Samaritan woman is that the more time she spends with Jesus, the more she understands about Him. And I think that's so true in in our lives. The more time you spend with Jesus, you spend considering who Jesus is, believer, the more time you spend in His Word, the more you see Him for who He is. The more you love Him for who He is. Though you don't see Him, you love Him. Uh, the, the, The desires of your heart are inclined towards Him. If you're considering Jesus, thinking about what it means to know and follow Him, spend some time with Him in His Word. And the more you see Him, if your heart is open, the more you spend time with Him, the more clearly you will see Him. And that's exactly what the Samaritan woman does. It says, after He speaks of this living water that springs up from within, that satisfies and that refreshes, he says she says to her, Sir, give me this water. I don't want to come back to this well. She's still... Focused on the physical, not quite fully capturing what Jesus has said, but Jesus, Jesus is about to go there. I don't know if you've been in conversations. Maybe you've overheard a conversation. Maybe you've been in a conversation where everything's going fine, uh, but then the conversation goes there. Jesus is about uh, to seemingly do that. Look what he says in verse 16. Jesus said to her, okay, go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, oh, I have no husband. Perhaps a dodge to his question, but Jesus knows. He says, "You're right in saying that I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true." I think on the surface, when we read the passage, I know for me this week as I I reflected, and I'm like, "I don't think I think Jesus here speaks to, to the Samaritan woman in a way that recognizes her her dignity as being made in the image of God. He gives value." to her in a way that no other man in her life had given value to her. No other person had given value to her. No other women came to the well with her. Um, We don't know the backstory. Maybe she's just been married five times and uh, all five of her husbands have died, in which case I wouldn't want to be the sixth husband, right? Uh, But uh, most likely uh, it's a reflection of sexual morality in her life. The man that she's living with now isn't her husband, as Jesus points out. But Jesus gives value and dignity to her, and so I don't think this is a harsh move by Jesus in which on the surface it's easy to look at and go, wow, I, like, everything was going well. She was tracking with you. Like, Why did you have to go there? But as we, as we know from looking at the Scriptures to, to receive the uh, satisfaction that's found in Jesus, you can't receive the satisfaction that's found in Jesus without recognizing the reality of your sin. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus is telling her that the thing in which she's been looking to apparently is relationships and the value that she receives from the men in her life. And Jesus says to her that that's not going to satisfy. I'm offering you the satisfaction that you alone can find in me. That I alone offer. And in order to receive that offer, in order to receive that satisfaction, you have to know the reality of your sin. We won't find satisfaction in Jesus unless we see the other things that we're unless we see the other things that we're seeking to find satisfaction in, for what they are. And the prophet Jeremiah will use this language of broken cisterns, the the default reality of our life apart from Christ, as we dig cisterns and pour water in them and think that that water is going to be there to satisfy. Those cisterns rust out and they leak out and they find us empty and unsatisfied time and time again. Jesus says, I offer you living water and it's a source that will spring up eternally within you if you trust in me. But you can't know living water in Jesus unless you see the sin that's destroying your life elsewhere unless you see the reality of sin in your life that that leaves you languishing to perish. It's, It's only through seeing both our sin and the offer of Christ that we find satisfaction. And ultimately, we find satisfaction as Jesus moves on. The satisfaction that He's talking about, the life that He's talking about, eternal life that's found, only comes through meeting Jesus. And that's the third thing that we see, that Jesus not only... Uh, offers satisfaction we can't find elsewhere that we can't find elsewhere, but he provides the only way to truly meet God. Now, I, I don't know if um, if in verse 19 is her shifting the conversation because it's hit a little too close to home, uh, or or if she's picking up on more fully who Jesus is. But she says, "Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet." But knowing that she's a Samaritan, most likely she's beginning to sense not Jesus is like a prophet, like you know, Jeremiah or Isaiah, because the Samaritan, she wouldn't have recognized Jeremiah and Isaiah as prophets. Uh, Her Bible ends in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 18. um, Moses says that God is going to raise up another prophet like Moses. Their expectation of the Messiah as a Samaritan is that God is raising up a prophet like Moses from among the people of Israel. And so most likely she's recognizing Jesus as he's revealed supernatural knowledge of her life, just like he did with Nathaniel. Um, she's recognizing that he's he's not just any ordinary guy. I perceive you're a prophet. And then she has a question: Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you worship. What you do not know, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews." The hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him, worship him in spirit and truth. And Jesus is showing her that the only way to truly meet God is through him. The, the reference to the temple is, is bringing up the, the, the issue of where do people meet with God? And Jesus is saying to her that now that I'm here, the question is not about location. The question is now about relationship. The question is not about where you will go to meet God, but the question is in whom can you meet God? And Jesus is going to say, as, as she responds verse 25, The woman says, I know the Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, here's the key verse, I who speak to you am He. I am, Jesus says. That's me. The Messiah has come. And it's in me that you meet with God. The, The temple, the place in which the people would go to worship, where sacrifices were made that that the people could come uh, before God, now that's going to to come to be in and through Christ, in and through His work on our behalf. Can we truly meet God? And this is a reminder, as we think about how Jesus provides the only way to truly meet God, that we were made to worship. As I was reading and reflecting on this, I came across a few different quotes that I thought were striking, and, and particularly thinking about how we communicate uh, the gospel in in an age which often seems so antithetical uh, to the message of the gospel. And there's a a, a famous novelist, David Foster Wallace, who would identify as an atheist and a postmodern in his philosophy and thinking uh, at a, a commencement speech or graduation speak at Kenyon College. He said this, which was, striking in light of the fact that he would consider himself an atheist, he says, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there, are actually, there is actually no such thing as atheism. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling, the compelling reason, here's a moment of honesty and uh, transparency for him, he says the, com- the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship, whether it be Jesus or Allah or some other thing in his mind, he says the only uh, compelling reason is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He says we all worship, and the only compelling reason to perhaps consider worshiping some spiritual thing like Jesus is because everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they, are what you tap, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before your family finally puts you in the ground. If you worship any of these other things, they'll eat you alive, He says. And Jesus agrees. To truly meet God is to move from disordered worship to true worship. If we all are made to worship and we all worship, then anyone who isn't worshiping Christ is worshiping but has disordered worship. The object of their worship is wrong, is misguided, is misdirected. In worship Jesus defines for us, He says that the worship that God, the worshippers God is seeking in true worship is worship in spirit And in truth, says this twice in the passage in verses 23 and 24, this is whom God is seeking. And those who worship Him, notice this, must worship Him in spirit and truth. This is alone the way that we can meet God, Jesus says. In spirit and in truth. And to say in spirit and truth is to say that worship begins within. It's a spiritual reality. It isn't something that you can work towards. It's something that God does within you. He awakens you. He makes you alive. If you're beginning to see sin in your life and you've not yet trusted Christ, that's God working. If you're a believer, you see sin in your life, not because you're smarter than everyone else, but because the spirit of God is at work in your life. If you feel the need to repent of your sin, I assure you, it's not the devil that's compelling you to do it. It's the spirit of God compelling you to turn from disordered worship to true worship. And to worship Him in spirit and in truth, the truth is found in the revelation of God in Jesus. You want to know the Father, John says. Look at Jesus. He reveals Him grace and truth. Jesus is the truth. And to worship God, to meet God, we must come by way of Jesus. And I love it that it says God is seeking worshipers. This is the heart of God. Not a, not a God who's waiting to be found, but a God who's seeking worshipers. So much so, He was seeking worshipers that He sent His Son. Because the only way that we could truly meet God and find satisfaction in God is if His Son were to come and to lay down His life for us and to rise from the dead. Jesus provides the only way to truly meet God. And and one more a reflection on thinking about the significance of uh, how we were made to worship and how that connects with our particularly uh, and progressively post-Christian society. Uh, one author, Samuel James, in, in a post titled, A Vision for Engaging a Post-Christian Culture, a title that caught my attention, he says, we should not see the in, um, impenetrable wall of secularism and despair as believers. I don't know if you've ever felt that way in a in a, in a culture and our broader culture that seems increasingly defined by anything other, uh, especially than a, a biblical gospel, uh, that's more inclined to secularism than it is inclined to, uh, to, to true Christianity, maybe inclined to spiritualism, but not inclined to the uh, worship and spirit and truth that Jesus is talking about in John 4. Easy to be despairing as we look at it. The author James says we should actually see what's happening. And what's happening is worship, worship, worship. The soul cries out for transcendent truth. We're waiting for someone to explain how we already live. We already are worshipers. And the need for the church of Jesus is to stand up and say, what you, what you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. God is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Spiritual life that can't be found in the physical stuff of this world. Your your worth is not in what you own, the hymn writers uh, Gettys tell us. Our our value isn't in the stuff that we accumulate. Our value isn't in the transcendental spiritual realities that are out there or whatever they may be. Our worship is in the Spirit and our worship is in the truth that's found in Jesus and the only way to meet God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks truthfully and honestly with the Samaritan woman and offers her satisfaction that she can't find anywhere else and, and provides for her the only way that she can truly meet God. And it says she left her pot and she went into town and she told everyone what she had found. And ultimately we see Jesus ends this passage with the disciples. And the final point that I want us to see is that Jesus invites us to see and labor in the harvest. The disciples come back. Of course, they're shocked at who Jesus is talking to. It says the woman left her watering jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then everyone went out to town and they were coming to see him. And then Jesus has this interaction with the rabbis. And uh, I love uh, Jesus does to the disciples what he just did to the woman um, at the well. Uh, He says, is it, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Which is striking to me that Jesus earlier said that the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And they're like, hey, we got back. Did we eat Jesus a snack? You know, like, <laughs> did anybody get Jesus the food? Um, and, and Jesus says to, him, says to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. To which my response is always when I read this. Well, why didn't you tell us that before we went into town, right? Um, but Jesus didn't say that. And he says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and accomplish His work. Do you not, see, do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see, He says, the fields that are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor and others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus is saying with His coming now that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come, the time has come. The time for harvest has come. It's a time for for reaping. It's a time for sowing and reaping together. The time of the prophets, John the Baptist ends the time of the prophets. The Messiah has come. The harvest has come. And Jesus is telling His disciples the harvest is here. You know, when you read the Gospels, Jesus tells us very clearly that our charge is to make disciples of all nations. Jesus tells us very clearly that our charge is to bear witness to the Gospel, to, to who Jesus is. But you know, often when we see the way that Jesus compels His disciples to actually take action, the way He does it is He challenges them to look at the reality that's out there differently than what they currently are. He sees people and what Jesus sees when He sees people is He sees people as sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus looks out at the crowd, He sees a harvest. Uh, he sees a field that's white for harvest. That the grain is ready to be harvested. That the, the reaping is now. It's as if Jesus is compelling us to see the work that I'm inviting you into, I'm going to do. It's ready. There are people that are needing a shepherd. There are people that are ready To to respond to Jesus. And he's inviting his disciples to see it differently and then participate in it, to join him in the work, in the labor, in the places that we wouldn't expect, in the places that make us perhaps uncomfortable, that challenge us to go beyond our boundaries, so that we might make him known. He's inviting his disciples and inviting us to see and labor in the harvest, the time in which we find ourselves is still the harvest. The fields are white for harvest, not just in John 4, but today. And the question is, will we be distracted like the disciples and miss that? Or will we be reminded that we too... You see, the option isn't, are you a Samaritan woman or are you a disciple? The reality is everybody's a Samaritan woman. In this passage, everybody is in need of the the grace and mercy of God, the satisfaction that he alone provides the 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 way to truly meet God, the disciples uh, were in the same place as her. And when we respond to Jesus, when we come to see him for who he is. We can't help but enter into the work. And the disciples here for this moment at least are distracted by the realities of why Jesus is talking to her and who's getting Jesus something to eat. And Jesus is saying, look, see, the fields are white for harvest. Now is the time for sowing and for reaping. Now is the time for mission. The disciples show us how to be distracted. The Samaritan woman shows us the joy of being a witness. I read it earlier, but she said, come see a man who told me all that I've ever done. You see, I think when we look at the Samaritan woman, we're reminded that we may not be the strongest apologist. We may not be the most eloquent speaker. We may not be the the boldest and the most impassioned witness. But when you follow Jesus, you've got one job. And your one job, is to get people to Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you stumble over your words, over how silly you may feel, over how uncomfortable you may be. Our one job is to get people to Jesus. Come, see a man. See a man who told me all I ever did, and yet still forgave my sin. Come see a man who knows the worst about me, and yet still loves me. Come see a man. Come see a man who knows my darkest sins and yet offers me life eternal. Come see Jesus. That's our task. That's the job. And and, and we sometimes may feel inadequate, and we may sometimes feel unsure of what we're to do, but Jesus is inviting us to see Him, to see Him as the one who offers satisfaction we can't find anywhere else, and, and the one who provides the way to meet God that He alone provides. And he says, Join me. Join me in the harvest. The fields are ready. The work is before you. I'm sufficient. In our weakness, in our inadequacy, his grace is sufficient. Come see a man. Name Jesus. Let's pray.